0: Tell God all of my troubles when I get home.
1: Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's installment will be another chat with co-author Chike Jeffers, in which we'll look back at the second series of episodes on Africana philosophy, which took us from the 18th to the end of the 19th century. Hello, Chike. Hello. Welcome to your own podcast.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much.
1: <laughs> well, so as I just said, listeners may remember that at the end of the first series where we looked at philosophy and pre colonial traditions, mm-hmm. you joined me for a discussion where we talked about the issues and the figures and the texts and the lack of texts that we mm-hmm. discussed in that first series. And so we're going to do something similar here. But I actually thought maybe we could start by looking back at part one and talking about how it relates to part two, because in some ways they were very different series, right? I mean, series one goes all the way back to ancient Egypt. And we also talked about oral traditions where there's no tradition of writing and whether it makes sense to talk about philosophy in that that kind of context. Whereas here we had an awful lot of writing to consider.
0: Correct. Yeah. It is interesting that... We of course pointed out sort of the oral part of things, talking about Douglas as an orator, Sojourner Truth particularly is one of the places where we, you know, mentioned the importantly oral character. I mean, I think in her case, she didn't herself do the writing. And so it's interesting that orality continued to play a role, but yes, I think an important contrast between the two would be. That we were especially interested in what happens when you start to have writing, particularly in European languages, by people from sub Saharan Africa in the modern era.
1: And do you see really strong connections as well between what we've been covering in this second series and what we did in the first series?
0: Yes. You know, one thing that was pointed out many times was the fascination and interest so many of the thinkers had with ancient Egypt and Ethiopia, which, you know, there's always, I think, an interesting issue there where, what is the word Ethiopia referring to? I mean, as we've seen, sometimes thinkers are using the word Ethiopia to refer to almost all of Africa or or Ethiopians to refer to Africans in general. Sometimes when thinkers are looking back at say Greek or biblical sources, there's the question of whether what's really being talked about there is the Nubia. but uh, in any case, you know the, the talk of Egypt and Ethiopia by so many of the thinkers and the ways in which they treated it as sort of the foundation of a tradition, actually. There's a sense in which you could say that they constructed traditions that would mirror sort of the, the trajectory of the podcast in that sense. By looking back to ancient Egypt as a place of, of learning and thought that is somehow relevant to look back upon by the diasporic thinkers in the uh, 19th century and so on.
1: I guess especially the figures who were involved in the Masonic movement, they would look at our podcast series and say, yes, exactly right. Our culture <laughs> goes back to ancient Egypt.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's an aspect of how things worked that I even not recognized as much before we worked on this podcast just how much the Masonic movement was important.
1: And we also had figures who reflect on the presence of Islam in Africa mm-hmm. with more or less generous attitudes towards Islam. Maybe That's one thing right. that didn't come up so often, though, is the question of oral tradition. I mean, right. certainly there's a lot of talk of, you know, civilizing Africa, yes. people saying things like these cultures were barbaric, and so, right. in a way, we might say that they were missing something that we managed to cover.
0: Interestingly, you know, when you refer to reflections on Islam in, in Africa, of course, one of the most important figures reflecting on Islam in Africa was Edward Blyden. And you know, what we tracked in terms of Blyden's evolution in thought is that he moved from sort of what was the norm. the thinkers in our series, that is to say, a pretty low opinion of uh, traditional African cultures He moved from that to this very strong appreciation. And he is, in that sense, this pioneer of cultural nationalism, as we said in the episode on him. And so I think that's relevant to the contrast that you draw there, that Blyden sort of represents what was the norm, but then Points the way towards more serious consideration of oral traditions. But something else I'd throw in there, though, is that if we go back to the very beginning, or almost the very beginning of this second part, you have figures like Kugoano, who lived till he was 13, you know, in this traditional Fanti world. And I don't know that we ever mentioned it, but you see him actually in his text highlight matters of world tradition. he says at one point that he stayed I think he's talking about when he was staying at his uncle and he says something like twenty moons, which is a, you know a, a roughly equivalent to two years or something like that and so you know where we start you know we can also we can also think about. Amo and how Amo actually went back and apparently maybe inserted himself into oral traditions as a sort of soothsayer, according to one of the descriptions of what happened when he when he went home. I mean, we start with these figures who can't help but have some connection to oral traditions because they were born there. But as we move into the 19th century, more and more of our figures who weren't living in Africa were not born in Africa either, and so uh, so that with that transition, yeah, that there's that increased distance from oral traditions.
1: In fact, I, that and actually it occurred to me before, but now that you say that, we've moved from looking at people who lived in Africa to people who were born in Africa and then kidnapped and taken away as slaves to people who were born into slavery, right, in the Caribbean or Brazil or the United yep. States. And now we're moving as we reach the turn of the 20th century, we're moving to people who were born after the end of slavery. So that's interesting. So maybe we can also talk about, as well as talking about the connections to part one, we could also talk about the connections between all the figures and topics we've talked about in part two, because Mm -hmm. geographically speaking, we've covered people who lived in Africa, especially West Africa. We've covered people who lived in the Caribbean, Mm -hmm. in Brazil, And Mm -hmm. in North America, mostly the United States, also Canada, even. That's right. So there's a lot going on. And also Europe, right? So you mentioned Kuguano and He's not the only one. So uh, is there, do you think, really like one conversation that unites all of these figures? Are they all aware of what each other are doing? Are they all kind of participating in just one discourse? Or is it more like we've got three or four sites of activity which have thematic resonances but don't, connect to each other that much
0: Uh, that's a great question i mean the way that you listed those various sites and in one sense the sites are sort of uh far flung but then from another perspective you know all you did was sort of make a circle around the atlantic right and so there is in that sense a unity even geographically right which is something that uh someone that we would talk about at some point in part three Paul Gilroy helped people emphasize with his book The Black Atlantic but in terms of the connections between thinkers in our second part of the series certainly we have you know figures that you can't just relate to one place and that is sometimes because of slavery so again there's the example of Cugoano born in West Africa worked as a slave in the caribbean ended up in britain so there's the involuntary movement that affects things here and then you have someone like blyden who born in the caribbean moves initially to the states but then soon after that moves to west africa who is one of his friends and colleagues in liberia well alexander crummel and so and the two of them visit the U.S. to promote emigration to Liberia, right? So there's quite a lot of crisscrossing that's part of the story. So you couldn't just reduce it in that sense to different places, different conversations with thematic resonances. I mean, you would at least have to start there with the thematic resonances, but ultimately uh, the conversation is a lot more linked than than that.
1: You just mentioned the idea of voluntary emigration from North America back to Africa, and that's something that we touched on a lot, obviously, which may have surprised some listeners. In fact, it kind of surprised me, to be honest, because it's not obviously a philosophical question. It seems like it might be more of a prudential or practical question, like, you know, are my economic and political prospects better here in the United States, or would they be better in West Africa? Hmm. So could you say a little bit about why you take that to be a philosophically rewarding topic? I mean, we did touch on this in the scripted episodes, but I think it would still be worth going over it one more time.
0: Yeah, to me it is an eminently philosophical issue as discussed by the, uh, the thinkers that we looked at. I think that one of the things we were able to bring out with all our discussion of the American Colonization Society and the controversy over the American Colonization Society, I think we were able to bring out what a fraught issue that it was. Right? And we looked at figures who even changed their mind, like John Russworm. And when changing his mind, you know, articulating philosophically interesting reasons for doing so, because the question is one of dignity for him and for some other figures who pressed for for emigration, right? So if dignity is something to be valued, what is the course of action that is best, most consistent with dignity? And then that presses the issue on the other side of the debate of, well, why might it be the case that dignity involves not going, right? And so we saw someone like Maria Stewart argue that dignity requires not being removed once again. She had that really interesting argument where she treated the idea of colonization as proposed by the ACS, she treated it as yet another displacement, that there was a displacement of indigenous peoples, that there was a displacement of Africans to America, and that each time these Europeans Uh, are uninterested in seeking equality, they displace, right? And so she argues that that displacement is not consistent with Black dignity and must be opposed, right? So I think that that's sort of an indication, you know, and the conversation as someone who, you know, has listened to all the episodes of this part of the series can attest, the conversation is also so long and ongoing. We stuck with it even toward the end with people like Turner and personally, One of the things that I'm proud that we included is Frederick Alexander Durham, the emigrationist from the Caribbean. I think that, again, you have interesting philosophical questions. So, for example, his claim that the focus of emigration should be Liberia and the idea should be to build up Liberia as a particular free republic, right? And that Haitians are the only ones who don't need to leave right? And so you have their sort of the issue of what is the best political structure, right? One, one of the, the most fundamental questions of political philosophy, right? What is the idea of polity and his argument that well you need, you know, an independent black republic and you need to have a, as little division as possible. And that's why there should be this focus on Liberia. So Yeah, I think that throughout this time, you have really interesting issues around immigration that that touch on fundamental questions of political philosophy.
1: Yeah, I guess actually you could even say that some of the first discussions around topics like Black nationalism and identity and the possession of multiple identities, something we're going to see as we go on, and uh, and is also relevant with Du Bois, right? right? So this idea that, like, I'm an African. If I'm an African American, does that mean that I'm African or American or both? And what should I do Uh about that? Uh One other philosophical question that I noticed came up a lot with the immigration debate. Maybe it was really with Turner that I started thinking about this, and then I realized Uh that it had been there all along. Uh Is the question about the problem of evil because a lot mm. of course, a lot of these figures were yes. very pious christians some of them were even, right. were even churchmen and yes. they are wondering why god allowed slavery to happen yes and so you have this very specific important application of this familiar problem in the yep. in the philosophy of religion why That's does right. god allow evil to happen and then you have the hypothesis that God has allowed slavery as an institution because it gave Africans the equipment to then return to Africa, spread Christianity, spread the English language even, that that was providential. And whatever we make of that, it's like a a really interesting uh, case of people grappling with this actually very familiar philosophical problem from philosophy of religion.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's absolutely... There in that sense. And, you know, I think again of Kugoano, who tries his best to resist. And actually, I think this is also true for Lemuel Haynes in Liberty Further Extended. There are interesting ways in which you see them trying to resist the idea of a providential justification of slavery. But even the, the ones who are, like Turner and actually, you know, even the early Blyden. Those who are willing to say this was like an educational trip to put it in a, you know, sort of grim way, you know, we were brought over here to land some stuff and we can now bring that back, right? Even the ones who who go that way, they all make efforts to explain how they are in no way letting the people who enslaved off the hook and how they try to explain that while holding this view of the providential nature of the trip in that sense is interesting.
1: Well, speaking of not letting the guilty party off the hook, Mm -hmm. one of the other things that came up a lot is the question of violence and justifying violence in the face of injustice. And so in a way, I suppose one could say, (laughs) well, if emigration is not the correct solution, and if black people are going to stay in the (laughs) country that's been enslaving them, Mm -hmm. and and is continuing to repress them and oppress them even after Mm -hmm. slavery ends, Mm -hmm. they ask themselves whether the right way to deal with that is to integrate with white society or to rise up in some way, perhaps even including physical violence. And Mm -hmm. again, I thought it would be a good opportunity here to reflect more generally on that as a philosophical question. And again, not just as a Mm -hmm. kind of political pragmatic question like, if we launch a violent insurrection here, is it going to go better for us or worse? But as a, right. as a question of justification of violence itself.
0: Yes, that's true. Although I would resist the idea that we can super easily tease apart the prudential aspects of these, these discussions. I think that there's ways of imagining prudential arguments for immigration and for violence that manage to sort of drop out all other philosophical issues so you could artificially talk about how such a discussion might be purely prudential in that sense. And by that measure, of course, the thinkers that we look at are philosophical and not merely prudential, but at the same time as being philosophical, certainly the prudential is centrally important to how they're thinking is too I mean, I think one of the interesting th- thinkers to consider here is Martin Delaney. So, connecting, you know, our previous question, emigration, with this question of violence, Martin Delaney argues that emigration is necessary because of a certain impotence with regard to other strategies. So a certain impotence with regard to morally convincing your your fellow citizens. And he makes an argument that you really can't morally convince without a sense of certain kind of force or power to, to be exercised, let's say, peacefully in law through democratic participation. I mean, like putting aside the problems with enfranchisement at the time that he was writing, You know, even if all African-Americans had the vote, he's making the argument that, they, that their voice would be outweighed. And so they don't have a force that they can bring to bear on the power structure in that regard. And then he also considers the question of violence and there again says that it's just not going to work. He has an analogy to Magna Carta where he had the barons forcing, is it King John? Yeah, one of those Um, kings. Yeah, one of those kings to, uh, you know, to sign the, the Magna Carta and he makes an analogy where he says, you know, we're surrounded by all these King Johns, right? So, you know, an interesting argument for a certain type of impotence, both with regard to violence and with regard to peaceful, legal forms of transformation. And so this is in um, a speech that we mentioned, I'm sure, uh, The Political Destiny of the Colored Race on the American Continent or something like that. We're forgetting the title, but it's his, I want to say, 1854 speech anyway. Yeah, so you have, you know, philosophical issues in terms of how someone like him is comparing these different options. I think that an interesting aspect of our story was ambiguity around what it means to advocate violence. You know, we had David Walker and we had his pretty unambiguous defense of violent resistance.
1: He's the least ambiguous, I would say.
0: (laughs) That's right. That's right. But then you have Maria Stewart who idolizes him, right? And yet seems to put the emphasis on self-improvement and to sort of consciously and even explicitly de-emphasize violent resistance. Even as we then looked at at least one scholar who tried to argue that violent resistance is a, a prominent theme with her. And then you have, on the other hand, Henry Highland Garnett, and his speech, you know, the one that was addressed to the slaves, and the one that, 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 that said, "Let your motto be resistance." And you know, there we looked at what is not totally implausible, right? the idea that, that he more speaks about resistance, even of a nonviolent kind, that is to say, you know, refusing to continue to be a slave, even if that means that, that you're killed for it. And so there's the interpretation that he was maybe arguing for a nonviolent general strike. And yet, as we saw, there's still lots of other reasons to think that, well, he was being careful, but he was ultimately defending violent resistance in the same manner that David Walker was. So there's, you know, a lot of interesting issues there. I mean, one thing that I would say, so if immigration is a kind of alternative to the hope that you can stay and integrate, so to speak, then I think it would make less sense for us to treat violence as an alternative to integration. And the reason I say that is because none of the thinkers that we looked at who were defending violence in the United States in the context of the United States, none of them were arguing that. Well, so we'll undertake this violent revolution and then we'll rule, or something like that. Or you know, there it was seemingly the the idea that violent resistance will be part of how you become a rights-bearing citizen, you know, of the United States. And I think that you know, when we got to thinkers like T. Thomas Fortune and Ida B. Wells, then again, you have them defending violence, particularly out of self-defense. Yeah, that is part of their hope that fully equal citizenship right is what's being pursued.
1: So it's about self-defense rather than revolution, one might say. Because violence violence would be a step along the road to integration rather than the antithesis of integration. That's your point?
0: Yeah, I think that that's what we tend to see. And of course, you know, we, we did consider thinkers of the Haitian Revolution. But what is, of course, interesting is that someone like Bate has a lot more to say about the violence of the colonial state than what is the you know, foundation and justification of revolutionary violence. So that's an interesting way in which the theme of violence is in that sense a conversation with, with multiple aspects and, and sides.
1: Something else that was quite striking, I think, about this series that we've just done is how many women thinkers we covered. You actually mentioned a couple in just your yes. answer to the last question, because you mentioned Maria Stewart, you mentioned Ida Wells. We yep. talked about Phyllis Wheatley. Uh, we talked with Brittany Cooper about a whole mm-hmm. wide range of female thinkers. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, I think, a notable feature of what we just yes. did and mm-hmm. suggest that there was something about the 19th century, which is when a lot of these thinkers were active. Mm-hmm. Um, Wheatley's a bit earlier. but A mm-hmm. lot of them were active in the 19th century, and it suggests mm-hmm. that there's something about Africana thought in that mm-hmm. period that mm-hmm. seems to have generated the possibility of interesting contributions from female intellectuals. Interesting.
0: Yeah, well, I do think that... To some extent, we are able to tell this story at a time where those who are considering the history of Africana philosophy, like those who are considering, say, the history of early modern European philosophy, you know, where there has come to be more of a, a conscience you know, with regard to the need to read what's there, to see what's there. And so certainly you could have had versions of this series where if we, let's say, came along a bit earlier in time and were just, you know, less concerned to think about it, you know, we could have had, I mean, and it was male-dominated, you know, to a good extent anyway, but it could have been worse in that, in that regard. But as I say that, it is interesting that you have someone like Phyllis Wheatley who's really sort of a founding figure when it comes to especially Black writing in English. And one of the things that I think was important is the ways in which we pointed up the philosophical dimensions of her poetry, what she has to say about the nature of the imagination, for example. Right, And so it is, in that sense, interesting to really, at the beginning of things, have this major woman and someone who is Recognized as a creative mind, but you know, as we have tried to emphasize, also has a philosophical mind. And then you know, the other interesting issue is not merely the the prominence of women thinkers themselves, but the the prominence of explicit attention to questions of gender, right? And so you have not just uh, women thinkers, but feminist thinkers, and you. We can, of course, discuss that question of what does it you know what does it take to be called a feminist? So was Maria Stewart a feminist? I mean, my answer to that would be yes. And then you have those for whom it's seemingly an even easier question, like Sojourner Truth and like Anna Julia Cooper. So feminism and gender as distinctive themes, I think that's actually what is as or more impressive than the number of women thinkers that we have just that becoming a very explicit issue and you know in the ways that it's in the background even when the thinker wasn't always focused on issues of gender so marianne shad she's not thought of essentially focusing on gender but i think we even quoted her reflecting on what it meant for her to take up the role of editor the, the role of editing a newspaper and what it meant for her to break that glass ceiling. So even when it's not, you know, the issue that people most associate with the thinker, it's there, as in Marianne Shadd In the episode itself, and then also the interview with Brittany Cooper, you know, I think with Ida B. Wells, we made a lot of important steps there in making sure that the theme of gender in her work was foregrounded.
1: One of the things that clearly happened in the late 19th century is in the period of so-called reconstruction in the Jim Crow era, yeah, there are two political developments going on at the same time because you have right. the, the the attempt to get rights for black people. You also have the attempt to get rights for women. Yes, and we actually see that echoing in male authors as well. Frederick mm-hmm. Douglass talks about it. Absolutely. Washington talks about it. I mean, Washington mm-hmm. talks explicitly about education for black girls as well as mm-hmm. for boys, um, although he maybe has more black boys in minds, but he talks about both for sure. So I think that might actually be part of the explanation.
0: Yeah, I think it is part of it.
1: Another thing that struck me while I was sort of looking back over everything we've covered in these dozens of episodes, this is really something we did not talk about, I guess, Mm -hmm. is the wide range of different kinds of texts that we've been Mm -hmm. reading. Uh, So we weren't mostly dealing here with oral traditions, but as you said before, that does come up. So we have like Sojourner Truth doesn't write anything herself, but we have reports about things she said, either because she dictated them, like with her autobiography, or the most famous thing she quote unquote wrote. Is a, yeah. is a speech that was yeah rep- was uh, represented or reported in a newspaper, mm-hmm. and um, so we've got that. We've got political pamphlets. We've got editorials written by people like Fortune. We've got mm-hmm. uh, outright treatises. Yes. We've got poems. Mm-hmm. Yes, I um, mean basically a- every kind of writing that existed at the time was used to yes. express Africana thought in this period. So do, can you reflect on that a little bit?
0: I think that it is important, right? One of the things we did early on was talk about the philosophical dimensions of so-called slave narratives. You know, I think that that early on within part two was a significant way, looking at how someone like Grania saw, for example, was bringing up the problem of evil again. As you mentioned, he very interestingly brings up you know questions of how one conceives of religion and the role it plays in where one goes, right? Um, because I think we talked about how his narrative sort of seems to have this theme of homelessness where, you know, the only true home is is ultimately going to be with the Lord. So there's a, almost an existential dimension of the narrative there, right? And I think it's important that we, we brought up uh, things like that. I mean, there are ways in which I wouldn't want to overemphasize the diversity of genre one of the things that we noted is that you know kugoano sometimes will get lumped in with an equiano or, or a saw. he was of course a friend of equiano and refers to saw in the book and john marit and to take myself on a small tangent one of the interesting moments where we showed the diversity of genre is actually we, when we took from Marant's journal of his time preaching in the province where I live, Nova Scotia, we had an interesting moment where we talked about him and the question of determinism. And that was coming out of you know, him reporting in his journal how a certain appearance in the pulpit had gone. So there's been, yeah, lots of interesting questions of genre, but I was speaking about Kuboano because I had wanted to point out that there are times when people have referred to his book as a slave narrative and yet, as we pointed out there's an early autobiographical portion and then ultimately it's a, a political treatise and then when you get to someone like Douglas right, a very central figure right in our uh, story it reminds me you know a little bit of, of how you you had to deal with the centrality of Aquinas uh, when you were doing your, your series on Latin medieval and you and in some ways tried to, to, to not make him overly central, but then he would just keep coming up in in various episodes. And so similarly, like Douglas, if one counts up the episodes in which we mention Douglas, uh, (laughs) it's actually quite a widespread, but I bring him up to say that clearly narrative and autobiographical narrative is centrally important with him, but it, you know, this is why I found it important that we have like, you know, that episode on the speeches, because in the speeches, uh, yes, it's a speech, and yes, there's a, an aspect of how that affects the rhetorical character of the work that is perhaps different from a written treatise, but the difference, I think, at that point, actually becomes rather slight in terms of making and developing arguments, there's a logical structure that Douglas is going to bring to a speech where he's building up an argument step-by-step, step. one of the most fascinating arguments being, this is I think somewhere where we may be comparing him to someone like Al-Ghazali, where he philosophically makes an argument for philosophy not being what's needed at that moment, right? And argues that you can logically understand why, right? Because he makes this argument where all of the philosophical points have already been conceded in practice, right? Uh, And so this is why philosophy is not needed, but rather the rhetorical force of scorn and condemnation. So in that regard, you know, I, I think that's maybe a nice example of what I'm talking about. Douglas is at that moment delivering an oral address, and he is consciously reflecting on What's important and what's powerful about what he's doing. And he is, in a sense, differentiating it from a standard philosophical treatise through this self conscious reflection. And yet, and then when you get to someone like Douglas, right, a very central figure, right, in our uh, story.
1: Yeah, even the choices they make of the forms to write in. Are themselves philosophically informed, and in a way, it's even continuous with what we were talking about with violence, because Mm -hmm. it's like: do I write confrontationally? Do I write invective? Mm -hmm. Uh, Do I write the way Booker T writes, sort of ingratiatingly, trying to remind the white people of their better nature, and so on? Right. Yeah. By the way, on this topic, I had to say by far the thing I was most surprised to find myself reading in terms of genre. Yes. Paul Cuffey's ship logs.
0: Yes, captain. that's. Uh, <laughs>
1: so, uh, we, loaded, we loaded 500 pounds of timber today. The yep. weather was fair. And sort of paging yep. through stuff like that, looking for the philosophical nuggets, and they are, they are there.
0: They are <laughs> there. They're through I a mean, lot of
1: timber and, and weather. That's reports. true.
0: <laughs> exactly. No, yeah. <laughs> you have to. I really do think that as historians of philosophy, we have to have that patience sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And to be clear, it's not a matter of you and I thinking that just anything is philosophy, or even that just anything can be philosophy. I mean, I do think that we're probably, it's probably closer to what we believe if you say something like, anything can be of philosophical interest, right? But that very example, no, most of what you get in his, you know, ship logs is not going to be philosophy, but that's a place you have to look. and. And you have to look there to see him, and it's of course interesting, as you know, which I guess may not be something that we communicated when we spoke about Cuffy. His spelling is awful, <laughs> and, um, and so so it's yeah you're you're reading through these ship logs in like this you know like where you're reconstructing the words uh, because of the uh, the very non-standard spelling, but then you get him saying something like Sierra Leone might be the country in which this people rise to become a people, which is a funny sentence in and of itself, but of course is reconstructable as this very philosophical point that he's already referring to this people as a kind of a people because he just called them people. Right. But this may be where they rise to become a people, right, where he's clearly suggesting that Sierra Leone may be where right, there becomes this entrance on the world stage from a point of view of independence. And of course, for him, that independence would, of course, centrally involve like the ability to exchange, engage in mutually beneficial commercial interactions.
1: Yeah. Well, actually, can I ask you something else? Because I sure. was just saying how surprised I found myself to be reading ship logs as part of yes. the reading for the podcast. Yes of course, almost all of this was new to me. I mean, I knew Mm -hmm. a a little bit about Douglas, a little bit about Wells, maybe a few other figures, but pretty much everything was like new learning for me, which wouldn't have been the case for you. So I suppose that for you, some of what we covered might've been pretty familiar, but some of it might've been surprising. So Mm -hmm. I was wondering what was the most surprising thing that you came across while we were working on these episodes?
0: Great question. Actually, the first thing I'll bring up in answering that will be a continuation of, my answer, of what I was just saying because there was a moment there where I was saying, okay, we talked about Cuffey's, ship shiplogs and Marit's journal, and I was trying to remember something else where it involves paging through a lot that seems utterly irrelevant, but then you find the good stuff there. And then I finally remembered what that is, which is Ignatius Sancho's letters to reflect on genre there is interesting, because there you have a case of a literary genre which doesn't exist in the same way today as it existed then. There's much less interest that you could stir up in the general public to just read a bunch of letters by a person. When we were doing this series was the first time that I seriously read through Sancho's letters. And this, yeah, that involves lots of wading through, you know, little silly jokes and, you know, how is so-and-so doing, you know. But then you have things like his argument for animal rights. You know, you have him reflecting on religion in ways that contrast with most of the other thinkers that we were looking at. I would definitely have to put him as one of the people who, I don't know whether I would call it a surprise. I mean, there's a case of, you know, I knew about him, but I never had taken the time to really go through. And I do feel like I discovered so much, you know, and here I want to just bring up Jose Easton, right? I mean, his treatise is remarkable with the various things that are going on in it and how it relates also to Walker and Stewart, his fellow Bostonians. They were all, you know, in Boston at that one time, you know, which I do think was a really nice part of the series, where we could kind of zero in on the intellectual ferment, you know, in that place at that time.
1: Yeah, also just authors and figures who they kind of cross paths, and you realize that all these people knew each other. Absolutely. Actually, we're coming right. up soon to an episode on the American Negro Academy, yep. and Crummel will reappear there as the of first president. Of course, he is
0: the founder of it, and yeah. w- which is a great person to bring up because, of course, you nicely started the, uh, the episode on Crummel by pointing out how you can connect him to <laughs> yeah, so many of the people you know in the series. And I do think that that's important. Douglas, you know, we mentioned so many times but I think people may have not been surprised by that. If they did know anything about the period, be recovering, perhaps Douglas coming up a lot would, in that sense, be something that they would expect and predict. Yeah, that was
1: the least surprising thing.
0: Yes, right, <laughs> right. Uh, whereas you know the fact that Cromwell, you know, has a stature that's quite similar in certain ways from the perspective of within the tradition. I think this is maybe part of the key. So Douglas became such a, an American figure, if I can put it that way, that is claimed by America as a whole, right? It's harder to do that with Crummel. And so uh, it's easier from the perspective of just you know, telling the story of America, right? To like have Douglas be a huge character in your telling of the 19th century, and Krummel to either not be mentioned at all or maybe be, you know, an, a, a quick aside, right? And, and I think we showed how, but if you're thinking from the perspective of the thinkers themselves in this time, that's the time when you recognize someone like Krummel is absolutely central.
1: I think that's you know? actually true. I would even say that, mm-hmm. that that's true of
0: the whole podcast, so not just
1: the Africana podcast, but the whole History of Philosophy podcast project, mm-hmm. Is that in mm-hmm. every period there are supposedly minor figures who maybe right. even had barely heard of and then yes. when you start going through like they keep coming up like for yeah. example very from a very different time and place is uh-huh. um Thomas Bradwardine so he's this 14th uh-huh. century figure He's like okay Thomas Bradwardine like Sort of heard the name, but he, right. just, when I was doing the 14th century, like he comes up in four or five episodes and touches <laughs> on all these different topics. So yeah. maybe, maybe Krummel is the Thomas Bradwardine of late 19th century Africana <laughs> No one's ever thought no
0: one, if, if you take nothing else away from what we've said, you know.
1: <laughs> so let me ask you one last thing before we wrap yes. up, which is just to look ahead now. So I suppose one difference between the 20th century, which is what we're turning to next and the 19th century, is that mm-hmm. in the 20th century, there are a lot of famous figures we're going to be covering.
0: Right, uh-huh. and who, I, who would you have in mind? As well, examples? I mean,
1: famous as philosophers, like Franz Fanon, mm-hmm. famous mm-hmm. as political figures like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, yep. famous for people who are maybe think of them more as literary figures like Zora mm-hmm. Neuhorst and uh, right. James Baldwin. So, yeah. I mean, the number of household names is going to rise yes. sharply now that we hit the 20th century. And I, I don't know whether there's anything you'd like to say looking forward to this period, I mean, beyond sort of reeling off the famous names. Um, <laughs> if you were going to encourage people to keep listening, I suppose if yeah. they've stuck with us this that far, they probably will, but what are, you, <laughs> what are you most looking forward to maybe about the 20th century?
0: One thing that is interesting about what we're going to do, I think, is that by discussing the 20th century, we are going to thereby be discussing the time where you, at least by the last third of the century, started to have a critical mass of professional philosophers from the Africana world. That, however, is not going to be our focus. Interestingly, with regard to the critical mass of philosophers from the African continent, part of the reason it won't be our focus is because of how much we did on that in part one. We will talk about, particularly in the US, African American professional philosophers. Sometimes there'll be ones who even get their own episode, like we're certainly gonna have an episode on Elaine Locke to speak of an early figure, an episode uh, that'll be on Cornel West, but even in the case of uh, Locke and West, you know, Locke is most famous for the ways in which he was associated with the Harlem Renaissance, rather than the fact that he was a professional philosopher. Cornell West, in terms of a living person that we plan to talk about, he's not someone who has been employed in philosophy departments, despite having a PhD in philosophy. And overall, I think that one interesting feature of the series is we will have lots of thinkers who are trained to a significant degree in philosophy. Another person who would be similar to uh, Cornell Weston would be Angela Davis, another philosophy PhD. You know, if you take someone like Fanon, already famous as a philosopher, but worked as a psychiatrist, King, King studied... uh, philosophy, at least in undergrad, I think that was his major. Du Bois studied philosophy uh, as a major for his first degree at Harvard. So you have, you know, a lot of these figures for whom, you know, higher training, let's put it that way, in philosophy is an important part of who they are and why they think the way they think, but our interest will not be those people who are like myself. We, we are not going to be focused so much, uh, again, not that we won't be mentioning any, but we are going to be focused so much on the people who take it all the way to the PhD and then get jobs in philosophy departments. Those people are crucially important, especially like if we were, which we're not going to do, we were gonna have like a separate series on the 21st century, then at that point, I actually think we would be focused, focused on professional philosophers.
1: Could have an episode um, on JK Jeffers.
0: <laughs> um, interesting, <laughs> but um, <laughs> the, uh, but there's so many people to think about and talk about who, for whatever experience they had during their higher education learning philosophy, didn't end up treating, didn't end up making a career of that. I mean, we're gonna look at presidents, you know, people like Julius Nyerere of Tanzania, right? We're going to look at activists, you know, like Huey P. Newton of the Black Panther Party. We're going to be looking at, at some of these different folks who are eminently philosophical in their writings, but who are, you know, active in all of these various different spheres. You know, we're going to look at Maura Du Bois, who is one of my uh, favorite thinkers, uh, we're going to look at the Negritude thinkers. Um, Negritude is artistic and intellectual movement that I am particularly interested in. So, so I look forward to us covering the movement as a whole, and, and then especially Leopold Senghor and M. A. Césaire as two of the major figures in that particular tradition. And what I would also flag while mentioning them is the way that they continue our discussion of genre. So both of them write essays, but they're also even more famously poets. Mm-hmm. Césaire that is, um, uh, who I don't know if we still have it, but we had really nice images of them on the website. Yeah, so there, there, there's the question of genre in terms of how of of poetry being a part of how they're expressing their ideas, and then just the question that we asked of the, you know. Is there a unified conversation going on? Well, you know, there you have Senghor, who is from Senegal, Césaire, who is from Martinique, and then they're together in Paris in the 1930s. But they ultimately become politicians back home, even though they maintain, I think, a lifelong friendship and admiration for each other, right? So they go back to these places and so, so, in that regard, we're looking, you know, at what happens when people come together in places like Paris and New York City uh, and other centers um, of Black thought. And then also, you know, what's happening when they are in various countries like Senegal or Martinique not being a country, Martinique being part of France, and Césaire having a lot to do with that. Césaire has a lot to do with. Martinique being a part of France despite being strongly anti-colonial in his writings. So how do you have a figure who rails against colonialism in his writings, but doesn't press for independence, rather presses for Martinique to become more fully a part of France? Those are just examples of some of you know the philosophical issues that are gonna be in the background There, you know, as we enter this age where independence is going to be, you know, a major question for uh, the Caribbean and Africa, the civil rights movement, the United States, and so on.
1: Okay, there's a lot to look forward to there. I am certainly looking forward to it. I'm sure you are too. I am. And I'm sure the listener is looking forward to it as well, or at least I hope the listener is. Uh, So thank you, Chike, for coming back onto our own podcast.
0: Yep, yeah, well thank you for having me or you know thank us for having me <laughs>
1: <laughs> and uh please join us next time as we turn to the 20th century here on the history of africana philosophy
0: i'm gonna tell god all of my troubles when i get